Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. We've been reading a letter called um, the Letter to the Church at Colossae, or Colossians. Uh, it's written in the first century by the Apostle Paul. And this is the main theme of the letter. If you're ever reading Colossians on your own, file this away. Uh, the main theme is the sufficiency of Christ. So he's addressing throughout the whole letter this idea. I don't know if you've ever felt this at Stanford. Maybe you have. That you're not enough. Right? Everybody identifies with that. Um, that you don't have enough or you're not enough in some capacity. We're all wrestling with, capa- with questions of insufficiency. Insufficiency socially, academically, vocationally, um, morally, religiously. Kind of always looking with kind of where is it and what is it that I need to no longer have to wrestle with the enough um, kind of thing. And, and what I want to suggest as we talk about it tonight is Paul's theme for this passage tonight is kind of like this. Have you ever been in this situation, or maybe more likely your parents or grandparents have been in this situation, where they're holding their keys in their hand and looking all over the house for their keys? Has anybody ever seen or encountered or personally experienced this? And they're looking everywhere. Where are my keys? Where are my keys? Where are my keys? And the thing you need, you have. And we're looking everywhere for the thing we need, but you have it. That's actually Paul's main point. The thing you need to get through tomorrow in all the different ways that you have to get through tomorrow, you have in Jesus. And we are prone to look everywhere but right in front of us. Everywhere but at Jesus for what we need. So I'm going to read from Colossians and we'll talk about that. This is a, uh, the letter, uh, Colossians 2.6 is kind of a turning point in the letter. Therefore, they're always big in Pauline literature. Therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so also walk in Him. Rooted, built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were a taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. He's not talking about philosophy broadly, but some certain false teaching at the church at that time. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses uh, trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Christ having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the teachings of the false teaching in the church at Colossae that they were insisting on all these kind of new rules of spirituality. It says, these things are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you by insisting on self-denial 
and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that's from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings? These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and self-denial and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Jesus, please teach us as we hear the Word from your servant Paul, as we think about what it means to change, as we see things in this passage that we don't understand, that are culturally foreign for us, I pray that you would teach us about what it means to live in you and to walk in you and to be changed and to grow and to be faithful. Father God, we need you to teach us and open our hearts to these truths. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so several years ago, is anybody familiar with the comedian Bob Newhart? Really? Awesome. Okay. <laughs> yes. Well, we're really going to connect over this, and then we'll get everybody else in later. Um, no, it's an old SNL skit that you might have seen. You need to go Google it, just SNL Stop It, if you search that on YouTube. SNL Stop It, Bob Newhart. Um, and it's this skit where Bob Newhart plays a shrink, and a woman comes in, and she comes in, and he says, I want to get the ground rules here. We're only going to meet for five minutes. My, my uh, methods are extremely effective. And I'm only going to charge you $5. We don't accept insurance. We only take cash, and I don't make change. And, uh, and I guarantee you, after five minutes, you will have everything that you need. And she's like, that sounds great. And he says, okay, go, and starts the clock. And he just says, tell me your problems. And she says, well, I have this irrational fear of being buried alive in a box. I just think about being buried alive, and when I start to think about it, I panic. The shrink says, well, has anyone ever tried to bury you in a box alive? She's like, no, it's never happened. But thinking about it makes my life horrible. I don't want to be inside anything, inside elevators, inside rooms. I don't want to be inside a house. And he says, so what you're saying is you're claustrophobic. She says, yes. And he says, okay, well, now we're going to start treatment. I'm going to give you two words right now, and I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. And I want you to take them out of the office and incorporate them into your life. She goes, should I write them down? He goes, no, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most people can remember them. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Here are the two words. Stop it. <laughs> and she goes, I'm sorry. He goes, stop it. She goes, stop it? He goes, yes. S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. <laughs> stop it. So what are you saying? And she goes, and then he says, you know, it's funny. I say two simple words, and I can't tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I'm not mumbling, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. And she goes, so I should just stop it. And he goes, yes. It would be horrible to go through life being scared of being buried and alive in the box all the time. That sounds frightening, so stop it. She goes, I can't. He goes, no, 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 we're not going there. Just stop it. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. He goes, yes, you got it. Here's the part where I convince you that this has something to do with the sermon tonight. You don't believe me. We all know we need to change. Christian or not, it's something everybody's wrestling with. 
um, that you're trying to become uh, a different person than who you are. And God's plan of salvation for you is not simply this transaction to some afterlife. Salvation, that's too reductionistic to think of it that way. His plan for you is for you to become a new and different kind of person. Uh, for you to be transformed. Salvation is more than a ticket to the good place. It's becoming a new person for whom your chief reality, the chief truths that actually guide and direct and fill you up and give you identity tomorrow in class and Monday and daily uh, everyday tasks, the chief truths that you inhabit and map out your story are, I'm loved by God and I want to love the world around me in the same manner that He's loved me. And that's what God means when He says, Be holy as I am holy. And He tells that to the Israelites in Leviticus 19. It's repeated all throughout. And you might think at this moment, like, Oh, so I, if I become a Christian, or if I'm a Christian, you're saying that they're like, I have to change. I thought God accepts us as we are. He does. He does accept us as we are. He loves you as you are. He actually loves you more than that, though. He loves you enough to also give you the capacity to grow into the kind of person you're called to be. And it actually wouldn't be loving for him to say, I love and accept you as you are, but won't help you become the person you're supposed to be. That would be less loving than he really is. He's much more loving than that. And so here's the hard part, right? Here's the frustrating part. Some of you know this, some of you feel this, some of you are frustrated by it, some of you don't want to hear it. Oh, so we're talking about the rules of Christianity, that I have to live differently. Yes, yes, that's part of like the Christian life, is living differently. And, and some of you might be thinking, like, I knew there were rules, I didn't want there to be rules, can we not talk about the rules? I like just talking about love. But we're actually going to talk about the rules tonight. And, but really what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the power that we rely on to try and change. And here's what I mean by that. The natural way, our natural methods for trying to change, for trying to be a different person, for trying to follow the rules, right, is the power of the should. Here's what I mean. To simply insist, right? To say to ourselves or to others, stop it. Stop doing that thing. And that's our tool. Insist. To insist. Here's the way that you're supposed to live. You're supposed to live as a person who's not afraid of being buried in a box. So stop it. Right? Now, does that give the woman the power to change? No. That's the comedy of the skit. SNL is actually recognizing a deep truth that's taught in Scripture, which is rules cannot change you. Can we change? Can you change if I tell you what you should do? We'd like to think it was that simple, but we all bear out in our own lives that it's not that simple. So here, okay, stop lusting. Stop it. Stop fantasizing either in your mind or with your body sexually about people you're not married to. Right? Stop being angry. Stop it. Stop being angry, y'all. We've got to stop being, stop being self-righteous. Stop thinking that you're better than people. Stop being greedy. Stop wanting stuff all the time. It creates the system of injustice that we all claim to hate. Our greed is the reason we've created it. So stop it. Stop being elitist. Stop being a workaholic. Stop thinking grades can give you peace. This is helping. So everybody's like, okay, got it. The rules don't change us, do they? What about start it? 
You need to start volunteering more. You need to start coming to church more often. You need to start coming to RUF. You need to start praying more. Uh, You need to start reading your Bible more. You need to make real friends with lonely and awkward people. You need to love the homeless in a way that's not volunteerism. You need to forgive the person that hurts you. You need to stop being discontent with what you have and start being content. You need to share the gospel with your friends. You've got to stop hating your parents. You need to not work on Sunday. So those are the rules. Those are all really great rules, right? Really great advice. Really great things we should do. We should do all of them. Does telling you to do them or to not do them change or empower you? No. Some of you are thinking right now, like, here's where Britain's going to say the list isn't important. Don't say we've got to be insisting on the rules all the time. Don't say we can't insist on the rules. You've got to tell us to do these things or we'll start to do them. No, you won't. I've been telling myself to do these things for 39 years and telling myself to do them doesn't get me to do them. I've told you to do these things and you ain't doing them. So telling you to do them tonight is not going to get you to do them either. And in fact, after we go through the litany of all those things, how do we feel? Where do you find yourself at this moment? Those are the list of things. Do all those things, you'd be killing it, right? But how do we find ourselves emotionally, psychologically, spiritually after hearing that list? We feel more weighed down. I saw everybody smile a little bit at the beginning, and as I went through the list, the mood in this room dropped through the floor. It really did. I saw it in your faces. I was like, man, this list gets long. Man, all those things are valid. Man, I really should do all of those things. Everybody got heavier. Everybody got discouraged. I saw it in your face. You start encouraged, right? Okay, yeah. I'm going to forgive my roommate. The list went on. Everybody getting here got discouraged. I got discouraged. Weighted down. Did you find yourself equipped and empowered at the end of that litany of things or nervous and hypocritical? What we feel like now is we all feel like frauds or disqualified. And what was going on at the church at Colossae is as they dealt with the frustration that the human heart just won't change if you simply feel like you should change and then rely on insisting that you should change. And that's the sum total capacity or set of tools you use for transformation. And what they did at the church was in Colossae with the false teachers that Paul's frustrated with is they created extra rules that appeared super spiritual and said, actually, if you do this stuff, then you're really a super Christian. And they did that because the thing we really want, the thing that gives us a sense of self-satisfaction, like, all right, I'm finally becoming the right sort of person, is we have some boxes to check off and some people we can differentiate ourselves from. Right? Which is what they did. Because here's what's hard. The most controversial thing Jesus says, the, the one thing in the Bible that everyone disag- universally disagrees with Jesus on, we are all unified in our opposition to Jesus, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, Muslim, Hindu, wherever you're from on the globe, everyone agrees, we all agree, that Jesus is wrong about this. He says, love your enemies. We all agree that that's a bad idea. We all agree, wherever you are on the political spectrum, socioeconomic spectrum, religious spectrum, whatever it is, we all love to hate our enemies. We all feel good about that. So it's really hard to figure out how to love your enemies. 
So wrestling with that's really hard. I don't want to insist on loving your enemies because I'm not making any headway on this, but you know what's easy? What's easy is to start to describe mature Christianity as observing holy days. Okay, I can observe holy days. I'm going to church semi-regularly. So I'm going to describe mature Christianity that way. That's really easy. And so now that I'm doing that, I can assume and feel kind of fulfilled that like, all right, all these fake Christians, if they were real, they would go to church like I do, to decide that that's a marker of Christian transformation is a cop-out. Can you go to church and be a total fraud? Absolutely. Can you not have sex and be a fraud? Absolutely. Can you drink a little bit less and still be a fraud? Absolutely. Can you volunteer and be a fraud? Absolutely. When, when we make simple external actions the only thing that God requires from us and seeks for us for change, we find it's easy to fake it. Appease a sense of self-satisfaction. I, I did the Christianist stuff. And usually what goes along with that is a dismiss, dismissive attitude toward those that are struggling to do those things, right? We become judgmental. We feel a sense of superiority. We disqualify them, as Paul says, because they didn't jump through the hoops. And Paul closes with some really amazing, tough words. He says, you know what? Doing that will look like wisdom in self-made religion. He says, it will be very impressive looking on the outside, but it has no power and has no value to stop the indulgence of the flesh. You're not a different person. You're just a behaved version of your selfish you. Right? Can, some, can we do some version of all the right things, even extreme version of the right things? That when Paul gets to that little list of insisting on don't taste, don't touch, don't handle, he's talking about taking the rules and making them even, and drawing the line further back, going beyond the normal limits so you can feel super, super committed. Can you do all the right Christian-looking things on the outside and even have more extra versions of the rules and still be a terrible person. Yes. We know this because some of us are this. Because at times I'm this. Maybe you are this. Right? You're checking off some external boxes the world admires and maybe you admire about yourself. But you know who you are. And those external boxes, they're a distraction. Insisting on the rules won't work. Even if it appears to work, it doesn't work. Because we're still living by fear. We still know who we are. We're not becoming a new kind of person living in light of the love of Jesus. We're becoming a more behaved version of our selfish person. We're still insecure and fearful and angry and judgmental. And we know it. And we know that that's the kind of Christianity that we're actually displaying in front of the world. A false form of someone that at one time looked to Jesus as our Savior, but now lives and walks by insisting on the rules. So, to turn, that's the first point, is changing my law doesn't work. And, and to get at what I think Paul's talking about, okay, then what are we supposed to do? What kind of transformation does the gospel work in our lives? I want to tell you about a conversation I had last night with Little Britain. The first thing you need to know is Little Britain is not me or a diminutive version of myself. I have a daughter named Britain, and we call her Little Britain. You're like, okay, this is going to get weird. Who's Little Britain? <laughs> Little Britain is one of my 11-year-olds. Um, 
they'll come and sit in bed and we'll read at night and we'll talk about their day. And uh, she's in fifth grade, and at our school, fifth grade is brought into the middle school. So she is dealing with middle school life in fifth grade. And um, nothing, all of your memories about the terror of the middle school lunchroom, that, like, never changes in culture. Like, middle school lunchroom is terrible always. We haven't solved that problem. If you have a startup idea, there's a problem. The middle school lunchroom. We all deal with it. It's horrible. No one's trying to fix it. But So we talk about the lunchroom. Right? It's the most terrifying place in the world. Nothing's changed. Um, she struggles with a couple of things in the lunchroom. The main thing she struggles with, first and foremost, is insecurity. The insecurity we all struggled with. She's deeply tuned in to who the popular girls are and where they're sitting, where they're sitting and whether or not she's allowed to sit with them. And, uh, and that can make or break her day. Um, but then the next thing she struggles with is she struggles with anger because she responds to her own insecurity by getting angry at other people. And she can say really mean things, which then makes the popular girls like her even least, even, even less. She's angry that she's not accepted, and she's angry that she doesn't have what they have, which is the third thing she struggles with, which is envy. Right? She believes, like, and we all have our lists, we're all just as silly as Little Britain, um, that if she had an iPhone and could watch R-rated movies and got more sugar and could vacation in Hawaii, she would be happy forever. Right Now, you have your list, too. I have my list as well. And all of our lists are equally silly. It's just sillier when we point it out to a fifth grader. But she sees them having this thing, and, uh, and she's envious, and so she's discontent. So she's insecure, and she's anger, and she's envious. And aside from the fact that we don't want those in our heart, um, those also affect how we live, right? Insecurity makes her ignore the unpopular kids, right? She becomes a vicious version of the person that's mistreating her. Uh, Anger makes her say nasty things to people. And envy makes her resent things and people, right? All of bad things, all things we would want to change about ourselves. Now, here's what I could have said to Britain last night. I could have said, stop it. Stop being insecure. Stop it. You should really... Stop being insecure. Stop being angry. Stop it. Being angry is bad, so stop it. Stop being envious. Right? We've, I've done this as a parent. All of our parents said it to us before. The kids somewhere in some third world country don't have what you have, so be grateful. Right? How many times... Did that make anybody grateful ever in the history of humanity? No. Has every parent said that in the United States of America? Yes. It's never worked. It's O for billions. (laughs) Stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. Stop it doesn't work. And in fact, stop it makes it worse. Right? To say stop it wouldn't just do nothing. It wouldn't be a neutral response for her. It does something. It lays her on her a burden to do something she cannot do. So now she's actually weighted down more by shame. I didn't remove shame from her. I added more shame to her. It's introduced more, more angst. All I did is insist that she be better and do the right thing, and she can't. Here's what I did instead. Here's what I tried to do. I said, now, first of all, if you don't know me, you need to know this. 
my two favorite people in the world are Tim Keller and Nick Saban. Yes, totally different spheres. Tim Keller, the pastor, preacher, writer that's most influenced me, Nick Saban, the coach of football, uh, for Alabama football. Let me tell you what, you need to know that before I tell you this. This is what I said to Britton. I want you to know this. If I came into your lunchroom tomorrow and you were sitting at one table by yourself and at the other table Tim Keller and Nick Saban were sitting there with the Poplar girls, I'd way rather sit with you. Every single day I would want to sit with you. I want to talk with you, I want to laugh with you, I want to hear your stories and I want to tell jokes together. I want to sit at your lunch table every single day. You're the one that I want to talk to. And I want everybody to know that I chose you over Nick Saban and Tim Keller and the popular girls. Here's what I saw happen in her face, which I think was reflective of her heart. The insecurity started to melt. The anger began to calm. And the envy began to die. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying those things are bad. Guess what? Insecurity, anger, envy, all bad. Still affirm that. Of course they're bad. Of course she needs to change. Of course I want her to change. Here's my point. Telling people to change doesn't change them. Love does. Telling yourself to change won't change you. But God's love can. This is... Colossians 2.6, the first verse, Paul starts. He says, listen, remember how you received Christ? That's how you walk in Him. The way your relationship began with Jesus, that's how you walk in Him. As you began, so also you continue. The way our relationship began, right? Remember the time you met Jesus. Remember the time the gospel crashed through into your heart and to your imagination. It dawned on you that you're not the right sort of person. We were all wrestling with shame and guilt in all different capacities. In this story of a God who's merciful and gracious to forgive broke through in your heart and your imagination and it lifted this burden and love came in your life and and all of a sudden there was a new and better story for you, right? And it was sweet. And here's what you did. You brought your sin to the cross and you found out you were forgiven there, that he paid the price. And you may or may have not noticed that it actually started to change you. You, were, you started to become a little bit of a different person. But then here's what happened after that. You ran into some of your old vices again. And, you, and, and you're like, well, now I'm a Christian. And you thought, when I wasn't a Christian and, and I kind of knew my sin, I took my sin to the cross, but now that I'm a Christian, here's what we started to do with our sin. You started to take your sin to the law instead of the cross. You started to take your sin to plans and techniques. Now that I'm a Christian, I've got to master it, so I'm going to take my vices to new plans and new techniques to get them under control. You stopped taking them to the cross. And here's what happened to us. Either it didn't work and you started fading into kind of despair and hopelessness, or it didn't work but you faked it to the certain groups of people you need to fake it to. Or it worked on the outside and so you became an insufferable Christian who's not a loving person but content with the fact that they appear better than others. And you're a Christian who doesn't think about the world, I wish they knew how good Jesus is. You're a Christian who thinks... 
people should be more like me and know what I know and learn the techniques I've learned for being a better person. And Paul is telling us, stop it. It's the one time. You're wrecking it. Just as you started bringing your sin to the cross, that's also how you walk. You do the Christian life. You bring your sin to the cross. The Christian life doesn't start in Jesus and then you're rooted and built up and established by willpower. You start in Jesus and then you're rooted and built up and established in Jesus. And it's marked by abounding in thanksgiving. Remember the first time, right? When you received Christ, you were thankful. And the reason that we're not thankful now isn't because He's not good. It's because we stopped bringing our sin and our failure and our frustration and our mess because we couldn't believe that He would still love even us because we're supposed to have it together now. But His grace abounds even now. And this is cause for thankfulness again. So what Paul does here is he tells us again what we have in Christ. He's saying, you have what you need. You have, he, he goes through the things he references... They're, they're loaded with kind of cultural significance, and I'm not going to go through all of them tonight, but we'll go through them briefly. He says, you've been filled in Him. In Him you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh. I'm not going to explain that to you, but, but I'll explain it to you. <laughs> by the circumcision of Christ, you're buried with Him in baptism, raised with Him through faith. When you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Him, having been forgiven all your trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. He set it aside. He's nailed it to the cross. There's a lot going on in there. Here's the Britain translation. He loves you. He knows who you are. It's the best kind of love. One of the ways to describe the best kind of love when you experience it is it fills you up. We've ex- maybe you've experienced this at one moment. He knows your sin. He knows your struggle. He knows your hidden shame. He knows it. He knows it acutely and deeply because to love means to come into the world with the one that you love. And that's what he did. And to love means to come and bear the things that weigh us down. And that's what he did. And so all the shames and the evils of our hearts and everything in us that screams out, I don't belong, and I'm a fraud, and I don't have it together. He didn't abandon you. And even though we worry that anyone and everyone could have good reasons to abandon us, He won't abandon you. And it's not simply that He did not and will not abandon you. He went to the cross to cancel the record of debt that stood against you. A friend of mine, when he talked about this, the whole sermon was about that word to cancel and how beautiful a word that is. Jesus canceled it. Jesus canceled all the verdicts that we are afraid might stand against us. Jesus canceled any accusation that can be made against you by the law of God. How can he do that? Because here's what we know about the accusations. They're not illegitimate. Many of them are legitimate, aren't they? How can he cancel them? He canceled them by paying the debt. He canceled the debt by paying it. You do not have to pay justice for your sin. You do not owe it. 
That's crazy to say. Some Christians in here are like, don't say that. No, no, we have to pay. No, you don't. You don't owe God payment for your sins. Jesus has paid it. Stop thinking that you do. Here's the thing. You owe Stanford, right? This is the frustrating thing about all the other realms and the religions we practice. You owe Stanford all the time. You fail Stanford, you better pay him back. Right? You owe friends, we owe the job market. Everything else in the world, if you don't measure up, exacts its payment on us. You don't owe God for your sin. Jesus has paid the price. He canceled the requirement that you have to keep the law in order to be accepted, appreciated, treasured, and loved. He canceled that requirement. The burden to prove that you're worthy does not rest on you anymore. This is actually what frustrates me about this place and frustrates Paul about Colossae is because these are places that implicitly or explicitly keep teaching the only way that you can be accepted or feel qualified or valued or sure is if you do what it takes to satisfy the demands of this place. And you may not feel sure of who you are or whether you're valid unless you do that. He knows who you are. He knows who you've been. He knows who you failed to be. And He wants to sit at your lunch table. And when you encounter those moments of honest self-knowledge and self-awareness that we all have, Christian or non-Christian, new Christian or old Christian, where the voice of accusation comes in and says, but not somebody like you. Because you know who you really are. In that moment, don't run to plans and techniques to try and improve. Run to the cross. So you can see that he knows who you are and he paid it all. Here are a couple of things about what it will feel like and then we're done. Here's how it will feel like. You don't have to feel like two people anymore. You know what I mean? The Christian you and the real you. The Christian you is who you're trying to convince God. The Christians around you and yourself who you are, but you know it's not you. And then there's the real you you're wrestling with and you can't get a hold of. Get rid of the Christian you. Jesus is not interested in the Christian you. He knows it's a farce. We all know it's a farce because we all have it too. He loves the real you that's wrestling. You get to be one person again for the first time. Here's the other thing. You don't have to be afraid anymore. Instead of being afraid about the fact that you're afraid of being a fraud, you look to the cross and be reminded, oh yes, the cross. The cross is my hope. My personal plans for self-improvement and my personal willpower to be better is not my hope. Man, when that's your hope, it's killer, isn't it? It's terrifying. Dude, when the cross is your hope, you're free. No more fear. No more fear. Here's the other thing you'll do. You'll talk more about Jesus and less about who you need to be and what you should do. Your language will change when you talk about your spiritual life. You'll talk about the Savior who died for you and rose again for you and whom you love and who loves you instead of, I need to and I really ought to and I really should, which is what we usually talk about when we just kind of articulate our spiritual life. We mostly talk about our list of the things that we and other people should do. And what does a list of what we and other things and things other people should do do for us? Not a whole lot, does it? How to stop it and start it. It's not getting us anywhere. Start talking about Jesus. 
start talking about his love, you start talking about the cross, you talk about the resurrection, you talk about his power, you talk about his presence, you talk about his tenderness, you talk about his mercy, you talk about his promises, that'll start changing. You get this, you'll start talking about Jesus instead of always focusing on the shoulds and the oughts that are killing us. Y'all, you have what you need. It's at the cross. It's in Jesus. I remember our Scottish pastor in South Carolina who's this old 70-year-old Scotsman, Sinclair Ferguson, and he said, I'm not going to do the Scottish accent. Sorry. I always feel really insecure when I do that. But um, I remember when he said, you know how sometimes you hear the gospel preached really clearly and you're like, I think I've been a Christian for a long time, but I think I just became a Christian again for the first time. And it was just a sweet thing to hear a seven-year-old old Scottish Christian say, I hope I never stop getting that feeling. Um, you, know, you have what you need in Christ. You don't need new plans or new techniques to improve tomorrow. You have what you need in Jesus. Go to Him. Don't go to your plans and don't go to your techniques and don't go to shame and don't go to stop-its and start-its. Go to the cross. You have what you need in Christ. Let's pray.